0: This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products, and I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession, and 5.11 were founded on clothing, the tactical athlete. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 5.11 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all, there are the great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well. Their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, at 511tactical.com that's 511tactical.com and to hear even more about 511 their mission their products and their genesis listen to my interview with their ceo and co-founder francisco morales on episode 338 of this podcast this episode is brought to you by govx and as you know i only have companies on here that i truly use and believe in myself and govx is a complete no-brainer If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month, they're going to sell a different patch, and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to govx.com, govx.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 376 of Behind the Shield Podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Robert Sweetman. Now, Robert is a retired Navy SEAL who has a very interesting story. He was selling hot dogs before entering the SEAL program um, and now is well immersed in the sleep medicine world. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey through the military, from losing a close friend to suicide, the uh, mental and physical effects of sleep deprivation, both acute and chronic and his latest technology, the virtual sleep environment. So a host of topics that we cover. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to, hit subscribe, leave feedback. I love to read your feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating we get makes us more visible to people looking for a project like this. And this is a free library for you, the audience, around planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you share these amazing men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Robert Sweetman. Enjoy. So Robert, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: And how are your teeth
1: feeling now? Well, I uh, had to get one removed and replaced. A uh, little painful.
0: Yeah. We were supposed to, for people listening, we were supposed to do it the other day and you, you texted me from the dentist. So <laughs> I'm glad that we rescheduled. All right. So then, um, very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in San Diego,
1: California. I think it's about 75 degrees outside right now. Uh, I don't expect that to change much. Um, pretty mild climate out here.
0: Yeah. All right. Hopefully it's cooling down a little bit for all the fires that are going on. Yeah. All right. So then starting chronologically at the very beginning, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, that's
1: a great question. So actually, I was born in Kansas in the city of Wichita, uh, we stayed there until I must've been six and then, uh, moved out to South Carolina where I stayed primarily in that area. Um, until I joined the military, uh, my folks, um, uh, mom and dad, uh, Robert Sweetman is my dad. So I was named after him. Uh, and I have a little boy at home, Robert Sweetman, the third. So really happy about that. Um, uh, mom is Joyce and, uh, just a wonderfully supportive woman. Um, I have a brother and sister, Donald and Sadie. So I had a pretty pretty generic um, you know, upbringing. I think that uh, you know I've always had sort of uh, extraordinary passion, whether it was in uh, wrestling or other sports or uh, business. Uh, and then eventually uh, that led me to the SEAL Team's.
0: Beautiful. Well, you mentioned wrestling. Um, When you look back at your childhood, what are some of the experiences, attributes that you had that made you successful when you went into teams?
1: That's a really great question. And I think that there uh, is always going to be a question of uh, is the person who can make it into the SEAL teams or at least make it past the BUDS training, is that person sort of born that way or are they uh, shaped that way throughout their lifestyle? Um, so I think it's a blend of both for me personally. Um, you know, wrestlers have it the toughest. Um, I think James, weren't you a wrestler?
0: Um, no, I was a martial artist, but no, I, we, wrestling just wasn't big in England when I was growing up for some reason.
1: Was it? Okay. So perhaps you had some of the same experiences in martial arts. Um, but for wrestling, boy, it was tough. Um, you know, I found it as a, as a young male, as an outlet. Uh, for all that energy that I had uh, growing up you know sometimes I'd had frustration uh, learning what it was to be a young man and I could vent all of that through wrestling uh, but the other side of that was that I had a coach that was able to put a lot of pressure on me to do better. Uh, sometimes uh, it became very challenging you know back in those days we had to cut weight uh, we had to make a certain weight class we had to be in superior shape we had to be faster stronger. Uh, and I was relatively successful with wrestling, um, definitely broke the records at my school. Uh, there's another young man who's since broken them recently. Um, yeah, so all of that uh, wrestling contributed to, uh, I think, a mindset uh, that allowed me uh, a little bit of, of tranquility of mind during the chaos uh, through the BUDS training that uh, allows you to get into the SEAL teams. And then there's some other things, um, just really having a strong, innate desire to succeed, and um, you know, exercising that multiple times, never giving up. Uh, I think all of those things contributed.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's funny. A lot of the high performers I've had on here, wrestling, seems to be you know one of the common denominators. So it seems like it should be maybe pushed more in schools. Yeah. Well,
1: I think wrestling was the first sport, right? Um, back when people started thinking about sports and now i gosh i don't remember how long ago it was but they uh considered removing it from the olympics and gosh it just breaks my heart because wrestling was such a big part of my life uh it shaped who i was for sure definitely got me uh
0: definitely got me fired up yeah we gotta make space for curling <laughs> <laughs> that's right there's
1: always that right
0: <laughs> All right. Well, then what about your family? Did you have any military or first responders in your either close or, or distant family?
1: Yeah. So my grandfather was a World War II guy. And, you know, that came that left a pretty significant uh, impact on his life. Boy, uh, so my dad um, kind of steered away from the military. Um, he had his fill bouncing around uh, different army bases growing up. Um, so immediately in the family, um, uh, my brother was the first to join. He joined the Marine Corps back in, oh gosh, was it 2003, uh, when he graduated high school? And I didn't, um, actually it took me a while to make that decision. Uh, and I'm glad I did. I kind of looked at my brother with a lot of respect. Um, but then externally we had, you know, friends in law enforcement. Um, we love our firefighters. Um, Yeah.
0: Beautiful. Well, you mentioned about entering. So you have a very interesting journey to you know, finally enlisting in the Navy. So kind of walk me through what your career aspirations were then when you were kind of getting the end of high school and then that journey to finally enlisting.
1: Yeah. So there was a gap between high school and and when I joined. So my vision was to get out of this small town of Liberty where I used to live and really explore um, business. And, you know, I moved to the the next uh, biggest city, uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and I really loved that. And I wanted to be a part of my community and sort of, I guess, be a man, right? Like have a business, be a part of uh, town hall, uh, sit in on meetings, talk to important people, and just be a functioning part of uh, my society as I saw it uh, at that point. But, you know, I, I did do that for a while, and I was relatively successful in business. Um, <laughs> one of the businesses that I started was a, uh, a hot dog stand. It was so funny. It was, it was just a bet uh, between the guy who I was working for. I said, you know what? I think I can do that. And he says, there's no way that will happen. Uh, and I won that bet. So uh, at one point, it's, it's silly, right? But at one point in time, you could see us there on the Welcome to Greenville commercial, uh, hot dog stands on, downtown Greenville Uh, but you know I kind of got bored with that Uh, I I did insurance I did uh, some promotions I did some other types of sales I went into that uh, you know restaurant concessions business for the the food service and none of that was fulfilling Um, it was fun and we made you know plenty of money had a great lifestyle was able to travel and and sort of mess around but that's not the deep meaning I think that I was looking for. And I I didn't really know how to answer that um, internal desire until uh, it occurred to me that maybe I should just join the military. Um, You know, I always felt like I I owed a service to my country and that doesn't have to be the military. It can be, you know, a first responder, Peace Corps, volunteer work. I feel that everyone should, um, you know, give it a shot to, to give some of their time and energy of their life to uh, their community, to society. And for me, I felt like, you know, whether this is right or wrong, I felt like I really needed to earn my right to live in America. And so I always wanted to join the military. Maybe I was a little bit scared uh, or nervous. So at 28 years old, I decided that, you know what? I'm not getting any younger. It looks like the cutoff for some of these programs is, is right at 28. So, why not give it a shot? Uh, and that's exactly what I did.
0: So, right. Well, you initially tried the Marines. Is that right? Well,
1: you know, I went and talked to the Marine Corps recruiter. Um, and boy, they have a, an interesting program with the 0321s. Uh, they have like recon Marines, uh, you know, how they move into force recon. I never really quite figured all that out, but just an incredible group of people. And my brother was a Marine, so I wanted to be with him. Uh, but as it was, the, he was sort of phasing out of his uh, military career. He did eight years, the Marine Corps, and I was just now getting started. So it was unlikely that I was going to be able to be on a unit with him. Um, so, okay, I walked next door to the, the Navy recruiter. <laughs> if you've ever been to the recruiting station in Greenville, it might be the same in Florida. But there's there's Army, Navy, Marine Corps, boom, right in a row, right there. So I just walked out of one, walked over next door, walked in the next. And, you know, the Navy was just talking my language. You know, they're talking about education benefits. They're talking about possibilities for your career. I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to be a corpsman and then perhaps have a, a chance at a EMT job or nurse job or, or who knows what the future is when I get out. Uh, but, you know, I talked to him about that SEAL program that seemed awful attractive. Uh, so the question was, and, you know, not a lot of SEALs go through Greenville, South Carolina. There's just not a lot of SEALs <laughs> in general. This is your so in Texas. Walked, it, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, a lot of Marines, too. Um, but, you know, when I walked into the recruiter, uh, you know, this – this guy that had been in the Navy for a period of time and then taking on that recruiter billet, he just kind of laughed at me. He's like, Oh, so that's what you want to do. Here you go, buddy. You know, he just wanted me to sign the dotted line. So I wanted to qualify for that seal contract. That was a thing at that time you could qualify for it and kind of get that in writing. So that was my strategy. I wanted to get that in writing. I didn't want to just sign up for the Navy and get sent out to a ship. Um, when my desire was really to try out for the SEAL teams. So they made us run, swim, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, the whole bit. And I did okay, you know, for, to be a 200 pound guy, I could still run, you know, sub six minute miles. They were like, Oh, that's really good. It's like, okay. Didn't know how to swim. So I had to jump in there. And I don't know if you've ever seen uh <laughs> it, it's a little embarrassing, but, Whatever it was that I was doing uh, was able to get me uh, under the the time limit, the time cutoff. I, I think it must have looked like some type of just I was just reaching out and grabbing the water and pulling it below me, uh, but I didn't have an idea how to swim, so I, I just narrowly made that um, cut off and then uh, push ups pull ups sit ups, all basic stuff. I was able to score. Um, you know top marks in each category like boom here you go here's a contract easy as that little did I know that none of that stuff really matters uh once you get right down to it Uh, but that was definitely an early qualifier
0: right so what have you been doing up to that point because I mean even even the entry tests I mean that's still for the average person walking around today would be very hard to do just you know walking off the street so had you been you know what have been your exercise practice up to that point
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. So, you know, that wrestling uh, got me started off on the right foot. I was also in cross country. Um, so running and exercising with body weight, whether it's pull-ups, push-ups, calisthenics, planks, that sort of thing. Uh, I always maintain that. And, you know, I I transitioned from wrestling at some point to jujitsu. And so, you know, where, where we lack in wrestling tournaments uh, outside of high school, we make up for in jiu-jitsu uh, tournaments. It seems like there's they're everywhere, uh, even at that time, which was about 10 years ago. So I'm, I'm still competing in jiu-jitsu and staying in shape, probably not running as much as I should have, not all the way up until the point where I decided that this might be something that I want to do. Now, interestingly enough, I'm glad you brought this up, James, because – what how do you get ready for the SEAL teams? How do you get ready for Buds? You know, I watched the 224 video on YouTube, uh, which is um I believe that was the class where they showed sort of uh, you know a video crew running around following the uh, the Buds instructors in these uh would-be Navy SEALs in training. I looked at it I'm like that can't be that hard. I mean <laughs> that, I mean look at them. They they're just they just need to be a little tougher, right? Ooh, little did I know. So, but in preparation for that, um, you know, that thought, like, how do, I, how do I get from where I'm at now? Um, to seal training, I quit my, the, the hot dog business is what I was doing at the time, sold it to my buddy, went and got a job at a gym. So I was personal training, took my house. I took all the furniture, set it out back and I set everything on fire. I know that sounds a little crazy, but it's ceremonial for me, so no furniture in the house. I got a couple of my buddies who I was friends with that wanted to do the same thing. And we just turned my house into a training facility. Uh, we'd sleep with the window open because it was cold. We had a, a seven foot pull-up bar with a four inch pipe. So that makes it really difficult to do the pull-ups because you can't close your hand over the pipe. We had to climb over that to get in the front door. Just little stuff like this made it really tough. Uh, I think once a week we did thousands and thousands. So it's like, a thousand push-ups, a thousand sit-ups and a thousand pull-ups in one exercise to really just perhaps over fatigue the muscles. And so we just kept training and training and training. I was in the delayed entry program with the Navy and uh, I believe it was February of 2010.
0: Uh, they shipped me off and that, I was as ready as I could be I thought. You took in then you thought. so did that carry over? You know,
1: <laughs> yes, uh, the physical fitness is a baseline requirement to be able to try out for a program like this. You got to be able to run. You got to be in shape. Uh, you have to be somewhat physically hardened. Uh, but beyond that, and the reason why uh, my, my personal feelings on why so many people don't make it through well, there's a couple reasons, uh, but the mental pressure, um, you know the baseline is being in good shape. Then once you begin training, everybody's there. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. Who's going to put up with this level of, uh, of pain. Uh, Who's willing to do that. Uh, A lot of people, you know, wise up and they say, Hey, I didn't realize how crazy this is going to be. So I'm going to go ahead and ring out now. And, good luck to you guys others actually got injured and were medically dropped from the program because it couldn't continue i saw a lot of shoulders blown out necks blown out a lot of hips occasionally you'd see fractures and stuff like that so
0: yeah now with um you know with other uh, professions so we'll take you know fire and police for example you know we see a lot of political pressure to to lower entry standards. And in my opinion what I have seen is when you lower entry standards you have a ripple effect then of of you know mistakes on the job, poorer overall health, I mean all these other areas too. With you, you know, entering such an elite profession, what's your philosophy on maintaining entry standards like that?
1: Yeah, so I don't want to get into politics, but what I will say is that um, I feel like the SEAL teams have maintained their standard through a number of different, um, you know, pressures externally. Um, You know, sometimes guys make it through that um, perhaps didn't have uh, as challenging of a time as others. And sometimes uh, there's folks that, that go through that have a really, really tough time. I've seen guys go through multiple times. Uh, before they make it through buds. Uh, So the standard is there. I'd say there's always going to be a bell curve in any type of of human activity. Uh, I'd say the majority of the guys that make it through are are just really incredible people and deserve to be there. Uh, There's always going to be those people that kind of slip through the cracks. And then you have your top performers on the other end.
0: Yeah. But do you think that by having the bar held up high, you maximize the chance of getting the best people?
1: It's tough to say because you will lose good people that should probably be there. uh, But because that bar is so high and it's not not just running in a certain amount of time, it's an overall performance. Um, You you just have to hold that bar. You have to hold the line. Um, And and if that means I I can think of several uh, guys that just were incredible athletes, incredible human beings, just good people uh, should have made it through and just didn't make the cut. But the rules are the rules, and we have to hold that standard. Uh, and I think it works pretty well.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's something that we, we need to return to in some of our professions. Um, all right, well then, I just want to touch on one area before we get into your deployments, the, the lack of ability to swim. Tell me about that journey to becoming, you know, an elite swimmer in uh, the SEALs.
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, So, I mean, I just was a real train wreck out there. Um, I tried to practice, you know, by driving down to Myrtle Beach. um, I I recall we went down there at least once before I left for training to practice some of that open uh, ocean swimming. And what I felt, you know, there's a couple aspects to that, right? One, I felt claustrophobic, which is counterintuitive, um, but actually in open spaces, You can feel claustrophobic, and that's how I felt in the open ocean. I I don't know what I thought was gonna happen. Uh, Maybe the ocean was just gonna swallow me whole or whatever, but the expansiveness just stressed me out. So maybe that caused a little tension uh, in my body, but definitely uh, my skill level wasn't there. And so that's an easy fix, right? Uh, You increase your skill level, uh, and the only way you can do that is by practice. So I did start at a very low level, um, in the delayed entry program. I was able to make the standard, but that was sheer physical prowess, just beasting it through the water. It was ugly, really. But I took that, that baseline, wherever I was at, and I listened to um, the SEAL motivators, the instructors that were there to help us. And I also took on some swim lessons, and I took advice from other people that I knew that were stronger in swimming, And I really spent some time to perfect my form. Uh, It'll never be perfect, but uh, to improve upon it. And what I noticed was that, um, you know, once I got my flexibility to a certain point, once I got my form correct, and I just got the repetitions that my body was able to adapt, once I had that muscle memory in place, I actually did really well. I think, uh, you know, out of our BUDS class, um, I went from roughly last place to – I think towards the end, I was about second place. We never could catch the uh, the guys in first place. They were basically pro swimmers that had come in. Um, you know, we have swim buddies, which is funny because, um, you know, my swim buddy, Ethan, uh, always used to get so mad at me because I would lead and I would have a lot of strength and power. And I'd be driving in a certain direction, but in the open ocean, it's difficult to guide. And so sometimes I would look at the – you know, the bearing and take that line. And then sometimes I would just skip it and take a breath. And so we start to lead off to the left or lead off to the right. And he always found that frustrating. So (laughs) anyways, uh, it it did turn
0: out okay, though. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Well, you mentioned a delayed entry program as well. When you said about the bar being high, obviously the counter to that is having some sort of basically a mentorship program that, grooms people so they are able to to actually reach that bar you know if if that's their their destiny so you know tell me about that how did that prepare the candidates for actually entering buds
1: so it is a bit of preparation and it's also just kind of a place for uh, guys who are on a different timeline to kind of fall into a holding pattern Um, there is nothing that will prepare you for buds Um, you know, we have a saying, it's like, how do you prepare, uh, to be kicked in the nuts, right? (laughs) Excuse, Excuse the language, but how do you prepare for that? There is no preparation. You just suck it up and take it like a man. If that's okay to say, uh, that's just the way the saying goes, but it's just, you know, does the delayed entry program give you a better chance of getting through the seal program? You know what? Some of the guys in San Diego, uh, that have the Really close to home mentorship, like they can see the SEAL teams there. They they've got a really strong group of people uh, that come out in numbers, and they can kind of challenge each other and push each other. Um, So those groups, I think, probably they probably have a better chance. Uh, You know, whereas you look at somebody a town like Greenville, where we had like you know three guys that wanted to try out, and who knows, uh, you know, have one mentor. Uh, So there's probably a bit of that. But, you know, I got to tell you, we had Olympic uh, athletes go through the training and they just can't cut it. It's not necessarily how physically uh, fit you are uh, or how fast you can run or any of these individual activities. It's really the culmination of all of them. And can you do all of these activities over and over and over past when your knee hurts, past when you're fatigued, past when you're underslept. And oh yeah, by the way, you're cold and wet and all of these different things. And then you have pressure um, from uh, the instructor staff or for, from external sources, that pressure to meet the timeline, to meet the requirement, uh, you know, uniform inspections, all that. I think it's just really tough on folks. And mentally, they just start to break down. So does a delayed entry program help? Sure. Is it gonna give you a chance to make it through BUDS? Maybe. Um, but I think it really lies right here, and I'm pointing to my heart. Do you have the heart to, to push through when it gets really tough? I think that's the answer.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. So moving on then to, to joining SEAL Team 7. So kind of walk me through where you were initially deployed. Again, I'm not asking for any details at all, but just in general.
1: Yeah, so we went on a deployment rotation to, uh, for the crisis response element. Um, so to kind of give you an idea, you know, it took me a couple years to make it into the teams because you have buds, you have SQT, you have language training. I went to a level two language training and then you arrive at a platoon and, you know, typically there's a two year cycle. So you show up and, you know, you made it through all this. You're like, wow, two years in the military, I've earned something. Uh, actually no, you haven't. Now you're a new guy at the platoon and you'll get a whole new type of uh, special treatment. Um, they'll do things like, uh, <laughs> you know, we have a big gold trident that we wear on our uniform, and that'll be, you know, you're awarded that once you make it through uh, SEAL qualification training. as a final big piece of training. Uh, that's where, you know, sometimes uh, a mentor or a father or somebody will pound the, uh, the trident into your chest and the, the pins poke through, and it's, it's that moment, you know, I've finally made it. And then you turn around, you go to the team, and they rip that right off your shirt, and they paint it blue, and they call it inert. <laughs> uh, all, and diving, if you paint something blue, uh, it's just meant to be inert, which means it's uh, just a training uh, training aid. So um, that was my new guy platoon, and I went out to uh, the crisis response element uh, out there in the Middle East and had a relatively uh, benign uh, deployment, I learned a lot about, uh, more, probably more about intelligence than combat. Um, and so fortunate, fortunately, um, didn't lose any friends, uh, didn't see any combat, wasn't too crazy of a deployment. I uh, just really kind of started to wrap my head around uh, the military, how it works, what it's like being away from uh, my spouse at that time and the challenges there. Uh, and definitely uh, some sleep deprivation. Uh, sleep was always a a shortfall in the military. Uh, I remember doing um, so; it's midnight to six watch. Uh, boy, that was tough um, doing that on a consistent basis. And so, kind of like a night shift work, right?
0: No, exactly. Well, then um, when you know you you've been groomed up to this high level athlete. What were some of the observations? I know this is way before you really started immersing yourself in sleep science, but were there any kind of anecdotal observations you had on performance as you started becoming more sleep-deprived?
1: You know, sleep uh, is is such a big deal. Um, When we're young, a lot of times we feel like we can get away with uh, less sleep. And there is some level of being able to force yourself to to do this, um, to do whatever it is you need to do. Uh, But at the end of the day, you will pay the price uh, one way or another uh, by missing sleep. You know, Dr. Matthew Walker, one of my favorites on uh, the sleep topic, he's the sleep diplomat. Uh, He talks about, um, you know, short sleeping leads to a shorter life. Um, And that is just absolutely true for so many different reasons. you know, I just think back to, uh, nighttime missions. Um, you know, if you're underslept, one of the interesting things about sleep is that it lowers your ability. Uh, if if you don't have enough sleep, it's more difficult to read, uh, facial expressions. And so imagine the scenario, um, here I am, I'm a little bit underslept. I'm out on a nighttime mission. Um, I'm wearing night vision goggles. Um, high energy, Uh, maybe we're about to assault a target, maybe there's a really bad person in there, and I'm at the door, and I'm I'm thinking, um, okay, I'm gonna get a squeeze, I'm gonna open the door, I'm gonna go through, I don't know what I'm gonna see as soon as I walk through that door. We have the element of surprise, but I don't know what's beyond that door. So when I get beyond that door, and I look that person, if there is a person there in the face, I have to make a determination whether that person is a threat to me and my team, or if that person is uh, a friendly, right? Um, And I have to address that, that um, potential problem with my gun, right? Will I make the right decision? And it's very, very difficult to say that without a doubt you made the right decision. If you're underslept, your cognition is just not there. uh, And they, you know, proven that in, uh, so many different studies. Um, so my recommendation, you know, would be to the Navy that we got to get better sleep. Um, and, and it all starts with, uh, the beginning and buds, right. Uh, where, you know, they actually do a, uh, a sleep experiment, right. It's a very, Special type of experiment that uh, not many people get to be a part of. It's an experiment where um, you're kept awake for nearly a week, uh, which is incredibly damaging on the body. If you ask any doctor, which I have, uh, <laughs> they strongly recommend against it. They won't even participate or have anything to do with it if you're talking about trying to do an experiment like this. And, you know, in this experiment, in this uh, military-approved and monitored experiment um, that I participated in, uh, we will go through extremely difficult conditions, Uh, hypothermia, exhaustion, potential heat exhaustion, uh, caloric restriction. uh, And then uh, there's just so many different elements to this experiment that make it challenging, all without any sleep. Uh, So this experiment begins on Sunday night and there's no sleep. I think they give you uh, a small rest on Wednesday night. Uh, Basically, the brain is starting to really struggle. And so the doctors have said that if you don't do this, uh, it could be detrimental, uh, permanently detrimental to the health. So they allow them uh, to take a quick nap and and it's, you know, you're already having micro sleeps for days at this point, but your eyes just close. And then all of a sudden you wake up and your body has gone through some of the neurological restoration, but you're still so tired. Uh, It's ridiculous. So they do that once, I think on Wednesday, once on Thursday, and then they secure the exercise on Friday. This is all part of Bud's training. This is something that every Navy SEAL goes through. And so with this type of sleep deprivation uh, without getting too weird, I'll tell you, I mean, you go through so many levels of um, hallucination. Uh, You don't know where you're at. You're still functioning. You're still operating. Your reality is now broken and the constructs that we use to frame our reality in our head every day are no longer there in the dream world and the real world begin to blend with each other. And so this type of experiment, and this this thing, this experience that all of us who've made it through SEAL training have gone through, that lasts with you for the rest of your life. Um, and there, there's several different effects. One is that um, you always wonder, you know, like, can I go back to that reality, that place that I was at, um, should I, go without sleep. Hey, I've done it before. I can do it again. Uh, so there's behavioral effects, there's psychological effects, and then there's neurological and physiological effects, uh, the damaging effects of doing that. So I, you know, I would never recommend anybody try that on their own. Uh, once you do that, you know, that's permanent. You're, you know, you shouldn't ever do that. And so, you know, especially to the young guys that may be trying to to look at this as a career. Maybe they want to try it out. Do not practice sleep deprivation. When it happens, it's an experience, um, but you should let that happen and not try to damage yourself up until that point. Uh, so that's a lot of me talking, uh, but I hope that was useful.
0: No, it, it was, and that's just it. I think that there's so many layers um, that I've been able to discuss sleep deprivation with on here, and it's, it's SEALs, it's you know, sleep experts in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, I mean, you name it, sports world. Um, and and each different perspective that we get is is creating more of a case. You know that the human performance is going to be maximized with uh, you know with good sleep, and we have to break this whole "sleep on our dead" um, ridiculous philosophy that we have. Now you touched on facial recognitions. So I want to make sure that we you know expand on that before we move forward. When you look at law enforcement, not so much with fire, obviously. Um, you know that. There is definitely an assessment and and, an acuity that we need in in fire and EMS too, but when it comes to an imminent threat, um, when you look now at our law enforcement around the world, knowing that they work shifts, knowing that they're chronically sleep, sleep deprived, what factor do you think that has as far as their own safety and the safety of the civilians that they're protecting as well?
1: That's a great question. So I've never served in law enforcement, and so I'll try to speak respectfully uh, about the men and women that are serving, I just have so much, um, you know, gratitude towards these folks. Uh, and, you know, I'm not a PhD uh, in neurology or some type of sleep science, and I'm not an MD, but I have been a sleep scientist for the last three years since I left the teams. And there's a lot to unpack there. Why why I chose to go that route, uh, but I will say that, like mental cognition, uh, you can test. Uh, you know, cognitive performance, and really, you know, uh, after you hit that twenty hours of being awake, um, you're going to see some of the same, um, you know, cognitive performance as someone who is uh, legally inebriated, meaning like they've uh, they've had a drink of alcohol and now they're beyond the legal limit to drive, uh, which I think in most states is something like .08 uh, blood alcohol content. So that's alarming, right? Because, you know, how many of us, uh, gosh, I can't imagine the police and fire. How many of us have stayed up beyond uh, 20 hours of wakefulness? And oh, by the way, it's the same thing if you're restricting your sleep by one hour for five days, right? Now your brain is just not working in the same, at the same speed. Now, you know, some people might argue, well, you know, Perhaps my brain is working a little slower than usual, but it's still better than the next guy. Right. Uh, you know, that is one thought. Uh, but I'll say that, um, you know, I talk on this uh, topic with the Navy. Uh, I've been out to D.C. with my good buddy, John Cordell, uh, to talk about this topic. And it, it's across the board. Anybody who is going to be placed in the line of fire, life or death situations are those, those really uh, critical decision points. Uh, whether it's in first responders, medical profession, including the doctors, right? If you're not slept, you're just not going to be able to make the same decisions, and you're not going to be able to make them at, at the same speed that you should. So I can imagine being a police officer, and you know, I have my sidearm, I have my radio, I'm encountering uh, a, a situation I don't know what to expect. It seems like it's getting, uh, heated and perhaps I look at that person's face and I can determine a whole lot about their intentions by reading their facial expressions and their body language and their movements. You know, one thing that we learn in wrestling and in martial arts is watching the core, right? The center of the body that that's where they're at, not where their hands are flying and flying in your face or this or that. So, am I as an officer able to make the right decisions if I'm underslept? And gosh, I would just encourage um, the departments to think about those swing shifts and how much time people are being able to sleep. Uh, When you look at pilots, uh, one of my very dear friends, Trey Kalish, uh, we did our MBA together. He's an F-18 pilot, just retired recently. Amazing human being. Um, You know, pilots have a strict uh, regimen for sleeping, right? They're required to sleep a certain amount before they're able to get into a jet and fly. Now, some would argue that, well, that's because they're flying a $2 billion jet. Well, you know, human beings are are more valuable than jets. And I think that every single, um, you know, group of, of individuals, whether it's military, first responders, police, should really take should really look at the instruction for pilots and take that on board. They take that stuff seriously. So to go even further, I think that there's some really unique uh, sleep technologies out there today uh, that give us a little bit more power to measure the quality of our sleep during a given sleep period. Uh, and so you know, one of the one of the topics that we discuss uh, pretty frequently is the uh, the racks on ships. Okay they have an eight hour protected sleep period. I don't even know what that is on a ship, right? But let's say they have an eight hour protected sleep period. What is the quality of that sleep that they're able to get during that period of time? Because there's, there's going to be an indicator for fatigue, cognitive performance, uh, everything across the board. And <laughs> forget about long-term health. Uh, if you're not getting sleep, I mean, I'll leave that to the doctors to describe Um but sleep is is pretty much a factor in every single uh, disease that afflicts us today. So,
0: yeah, no, absolutely, and, and I know you've done a lot of work with the environment itself in which we sleep. So I kind of want to unpack that a little bit more, just to kind of do an anecdote to kind of preface that. My last fire department, they had a budget to redo their tone system. So we're at a fire station, twenty-four hour shifts. We have a dorm and some of the places I worked in before, we have multiple rigs in in the station. So each rig, each crew would have their own little tone system in their bunk. So it would just wake them up. Initially, when it first went in, yeah, everyone could kind of hear it. But soon you kind of got used to sleeping through if it didn't go off by your ear and a little LED LED strip would would illuminate as well. That was kind of poo pooed and instead they actually put the same t- uh, dispatch system, but now a TV screen in the dorm room, which illuminated every time they got a call, lit the whole bunk room up at, just to tell them where it was, even though they were literally walking six feet out of the bunk room. It was irrelevant information anyway. So that was always like me banging my head against a brick wall, understanding what I do about, you know, sleep hygiene and, and, you know, um, Light sensitivity and that kind of thing. So, can you expand on the ideal sleeping conditions? Not only you know the actual time of sleep, but the temperature, the light, all those other areas. Yeah, I
1: would love to. Um, so, that's really interesting. The direction they took, and you know, everybody's trying to do their best, and we're taking on this sleep, um, you know, knowledge as it comes out in these scholarly journals and these studies. So, we're all doing the best that we can. Um, but I'll say, you know, there is some uh, habituation of, um, you know, environmental uh, factors uh, that, you know, psychologically you can begin to uh, adapt to, you can get used to, right? Uh, but there's some things, uh, there, there's some levels of uh, environmental stimuli that you just, you're, you're, you're going to get a response out of your brain, out of your heart, out of your body, and those are measurable, right? So uh, one of those things you talked about, sound. Um, is terrible uh, in the engine rooms of a ship. Uh, that's one of the things you're trying to figure out. Uh, and, you know, one answer is, uh, you know, earplugs. I think that's the best answer. Uh, very quickly, the folks can put in earplugs to kind of buffer some of the external sound but so there's still vibrations, there's still uh, things that your body can feel that come from those sound waves that uh, just beyond the eardrum. So the, the threshold uh, seems to be about 35 decibels, when there's a spike of 35 decibels or more, you can measure that in cardiac response and in brainwave activity. And so, you know, just to kind of unpack that a little bit, I don't want to go too in depth, but when you look at a sleep period, let's look at like an optimal sleep period right we, we measure that through the brain and through the heart uh, through something called polysomnography uh, that's the gold standard but we have a lot of cool sleep technology out there wearable stuff like that that the algorithms are getting super super close uh, very accurate um, but when you look at a sleep period you know if your brainwave activity is uh, high let's say 20 Hertz and you're starting to slip into sleep and that threshold between when you fall asleep uh, and you're no longer sort of conscious to the external world, you know, maybe that's sitting around 9, 13 hertz and you slip into slumber. And, you know, if you look at a hypnogram where on one side is the frequency of your brainwave activity, uh, you know, going up as high, going down as low. And then on a, a timeline throughout the night, let's say you go to bed at 9 p.m., Whatever. Uh, that first period of time, you, you know, your brain should start measuring um, very low frequency. Right. So you're going to fall into sleep and you're going to go into a deep sleep uh, pretty quickly. That's the first part of sleep. And so, you know, that 90 minute, that first 90 minutes represents uh, sort of your first sleep cycle. So you go down into deep sleep and there's a lot of uh, repair going on. Uh, there's a lot going on in the brain uh, that if, if we don't, um, if we're not able to achieve that deep sleep that could lead to Alzheimer's, uh, we can unpack that a little bit. But then the brain of activity seems to uh, start to increase, right? And it goes back up and it hits this point uh, where we start to dream. And we call that the rapid eye movement, uh, just because you can visually observe the, the eyes rapidly moving while the person's sleeping. And, you know, a lot is to be um, understood about sleep and dreams. You know, my personal opinion is that we're sorting out all those cognitive dissonances, uh, those psychological issues that we encounter throughout the day. We're able to release some of that emotion and we're able to store some of that memory. Uh, How much of that is measurable and and testable by science? Uh, Not a whole lot, but that's my personal opinion Uh, opinion on the whole thing. So if you have that 90-minute sleep cycle, what it looks like in a normal person's sleep cycle, uh, uh, sleep period, uh, is they should have, you know, five or six sleep cycles. So they go into this deep sleep, they come into rapid eye movement, they go back down to the deep sleep. Uh, However, the the deep sleep, these cycles seem to get more and more shallow, right, as the night goes on, and you're beginning to recover. Uh, And uh, actually, you'll see sometimes at those peaks where uh, brainwave activity is a little bit higher, uh, those are actually optimal times for the body to just naturally wake up and go use the restroom. Uh, So if you guys are looking at your Fitbit and you see, oh, well, I woke up three times last night, that's not necessarily bad, right? Uh, And again, I'm not giving medical advice here, but that's totally normal. Uh, But what we see getting back to the whole point is that when you have sound introduced in the sleep environment uh, with peaks above 35 decibels, which is not hard, right? I think normal speaking is like 55, 65 decibels. Um, So you can actually measure those in cardiac responses, uh, those peaks in sound, and you can measure them in the brainwave activity, right? And you can see a disturbance when you're measuring the brainwave activity in the sleep. You can look at, they've, they've got tons of tests. You can just Google it. Um, they have scholarly journals and this sort of thing. Uh, let's say we have a, you know, a young, healthy male. They measure his sleep. His sleep cycles look beautiful throughout the night. Nice uh, curves. But then you, you have take the same person and you introduce noise throughout the night. You can see the disturbances in the sleep based on the brainwave activity. You can see it exactly where the sound was introduced. And when you look at the hypnogram of somebody who has had noisy disturbances throughout the night, it looks more like the hypnogram of an alcoholic. It's terrible. And it could be um, something that impacts uh, a person for the rest of their life. This is a continuous thing. So that's just sound. Sound does matter. Even though you think you're asleep, you can still measure sound uh, through the brainwave activity and the heart rate um, or the uh, heart rate variability. So, all right, that's sound. So the, the top three things that I like to look at, and there's more, uh, but are light, sound, and temperature. And so light, to your point, the LED strips, uh, I think everyone should be looking at um, lights that uh, reduce the, the blue spectrum uh of light uh you know a lot of these LEDs are designed around a blue LED all, right off the substrate and then they filter it with um whatever to make the colors uh i think that everybody especially in first responders uh, fire uh, navy and the shipwrecks should be looking at um you know what we are using right now uh for another Uh, sleep technology that I'm working on is an OLED light that is designed to be amber. And it has zero blue light uh, from the manufacturing construction. And so when you eliminate that blue light, um, which once you close the eyes, it's a different measurement, but uh, if the retina is receiving that blue light before bed, it gets confused. It thinks that the sun is still out and it's time to be awake. Right. And that can, that can phase shift your sleep you can uh, reduce, you can delay melatonin production because you have too much blue light in your retina, right? It's directly connected to the body clock in your brain. So a lot of folks are, are struggling with being on their devices, and I think they have some nighttime filters on phones and stuff like that these days. But, uh, you know, that, that blue light does affect the retina, and it does make it harder to get into that sleep cycle. Uh, and then... You know, if we have light, we have sound. Temperature is that third one. Um, and, you know, especially like for us on deployment, you know, sometimes you're going to sleep in a hot environment. Uh, but what we found is that if it's too hot or it's too cold, the body has a hard time adjusting. Um, you know, the optimal temperature, I think, is, uh, you know, a little bit lower, uh, nice and cool. And the reason being is that it makes it uh, easier for your body to go through its normal function. And one of the markers to measure sleep is that uh, the lowest point of core body temperature throughout the night. You know, sometimes that might be at like 2 a.m. in the morning. uh, But when you measure that, if you're sleeping in a hot environment, your body has to work uh, doubly hard to cool it off. Um, So those are the three things that, you know, we've been focusing on for – you know, when we think about navy shipwrecks and you know how we could uh, improve upon sleeping conditions for for folks,
0: is yeah. that a good answer? No, it was a great answer, and that's the thing. So there's elements that are totally in our control. I mean, you know, not putting screens in a bunk room, for example, and and flashing lights and that kind of thing, um, unless, like I said, it's right by the bed and it can just alert that one. Person, I mean, ideally, fire stations have their own rooms now, in little small bunk rooms, but that's still, you know, um, a far cry from a lot of places. But then, like you said, the sound. I mean, even, again, another selling point for individual bunk rooms is a bunk full of farting, snoring men and women, you know, makes for a shitty night's sleep. Um, it does. But then the third thing, like you said, is the temperature. And I've seen, I've been in departments where they control the temperature from a remote facility. So they'll have, you know, the fire station at, you know, high 70s and and everyone's sweating and can't sleep. So I think understanding the impact of these elements on quality of sleep, therefore performance of the policeman, the firefighter, whoever it is, is a very, very important thing for individuals to understand so they can own their own sleep hygiene, but also um, organizations to understand so they can create an environment for their responders, their corrections officers, whoever it is, to actually be functioning at an optimal rate as well.
1: Well, James, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, And I, gosh, I've thought about this so much. And so when I designed the first uh, sleep pod for Navy SEALs, my thought was, okay, let's be realistic, right? Like, you can't just be sleeping all night through a gunfight. If you're getting attacked, Uh, There has to be some level of response. But how many times uh, does the person get woken up uh, by somebody else uh, inadvertently and they don't need to be woken up, right? There's a reason that we have watch cycles um, going all the way back to tribes, right? Some people like to go to bed early. Some people like to go to bed late. And so because we have always somebody awake, or on watch, we don't get eaten by a lion, right, so to speak, in the, in the tribal sense. Uh, but in the military sense, which is uh, probably what I think I can speak best to, I'm thinking about like, okay, so if you need to be on deck, how do we provide that alert? Because that's just the call of duty. I mean, it is what it is. You got to wake up. You got to respond. However, if it's not an emergency and you don't need to be on deck, it's not your watch cycle or whatever, how do we protect that sleep? So that when they are called to duty, they're performing at their best. And that's so challenging, but it has to be protected sleep. It has to be, I think, to what we're getting at here is, you know, dark, cool, quiet environment. That's protected, that you can get that sleep that you need so you can feel your best, so you can perform your best, so you can make good decisions when those decisions are required of you.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to, I want to kind of unpack the mental health side, but I think we'll take you back to deployment so we can talk about, you know, your injury and then, and Ryan as well. One, one question I always like to ask people that were deployed though, coming from a civilian myself, having never, never served. Um, we, you get a lot of polarizing, um, uh, lenses on war in general you know there's the one i say this all the time you know bomb them all let god sort them out and then there's the you know war is murder kind of thing so coming from not just a civilian up to late teens but civilian you know almost into your 30s what were there any things that you saw on deployment that you realized okay regardless of politics again i am actually you know, definitely protecting these people. I'm out here, I'm doing something good because of what I'm seeing now.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a philosophical question and something that people will have to deal with the rest of their lives. Um, for me, uh, and I think most team guys, uh, team guys being uh, the term for Navy SEALs, we, we live by a warrior code, right? And we understand that Uh, Sometimes the things that we have to do Don't necessarily align with an idealistic um, You know, sort of essence of humanity and life Um, But if we are called to duty And we have to respond uh, That we know we're doing it for the right reason Right, we're protecting uh, The interests of the United States uh, And peace in general In a region Do we cross those lines where, you know, we feel uncomfortable or, you know, perhaps, um, you know, we don't necessarily agree with the direction of our leadership. Sure. Those, those instances will happen. Um, are we out there for the right reason? Are we doing the right thing? Why, you know, what are we even doing here? Of course, everyone asks themselves those questions at times. Um, But I got to tell you, uh, there's something pretty great about America. And, you know, I I just have to say that uh, I love this country. I'm honored to be here. If, you know, if the military had, you know, called upon my life and that was the end, I would have been proud uh, giving my life for my country. I think that's what we all do when we sign that dotted line. Um, fortunately, I did make it out. Um, I think I'm Okay. Uh, but some of the, the things that we have to deal with that we uh, try to sort out with that warrior code, some of those things still stick with me. Uh, and I think with with everyone who went through an experience, that might have felt traumatic. Um, so, you know, my heart is out to all the folks that have served. And, you know, mental health is a huge issue. Um, it's not a, a taboo word. It's not a weakness. It's not something that. It's like, oh, you mental health, you're weak, um, you can't perform. Actually, mental health is an aspect of every single one of us. And when you have uh, traumatic memories that echo in your mind uh, for what may feel like eternity, um, it's not that there's something wrong with you. That's a normal response to, um, to a traumatic event and, you know, gone untreated If you're left to your own devices, these things can make you go crazy, man. We still have uh, a number of veterans committing suicide every day. Um, At one point, it was 22 veterans, and I think that was the motto for a long time. I can't recall exactly what the the figures are looking like today. Um, But it's something that I'm very passionate about. Um, You know, I, I try to help out with as many volunteer organizations for veterans as possible. My focus is on sleep and how that impacts mental health Uh, but i definitely get on board with a lot of different groups that have a different uh, approach and perspective to trying to end veteran suicide and to improve uh, mental health with with veterans so there's definitely more that we can do
0: absolutely well i know you had a you know a, a personal tragedy so tell me about ryan who he was and and the kind of his journey yeah
1: thanks for asking uh so ryan larkin So Ryan was an incredible person. Um, I was a new guy in his platoon. And so he was always tough on me. Um, You know, sometimes I wondered if we were even friends. Um, I think because I looked up to him and he was kind of being tough on me as an older guy and I was a new guy kind of thing. Um, But I did look up to him. I thought he was awesome. Um, He was a sniper and a medic and just... And all-around good SEAL. He, We were at a platoon together back at Team uh, 7. And then uh, he went on to trade at. Uh, he was doing some things. I saw him on a rotator out in uh, Spain. We, we met up at this hotel. And uh, at that point, I noticed the change in sort of like where he was at to where, uh, where he was at before. And the biggest thing that I noticed – was that, um, you know, the the Navy had prescribed him uh, Ambien. And we all know the horror stories with Ambien. Uh, Gosh, you take the stuff and it's like Ambien amnesia, um, you know, sedative-induced sleep, uh, degraded sleep performance throughout the night. But I just need it. I need it to go to sleep. And then it becomes an addiction. So I'm definitely not a supporter of uh, pharmaceutical sleep aids. Uh, Sure, if you're MD prescribes it for a short period of time. Okay. Uh, but not long term. The effects are too damaging, but anyway, so Ryan was, uh, I noticed he was taking a lot of Ambien and, and perhaps there was a little bit uh, of alcohol involved to help go to sleep. You know, maybe, uh, Ryan was dealing with some things that he had seen in the past. Um, I mean, that's, that's just the truth of it. And, uh, perhaps there's a little bit of traumatic brain injury, um, TBI or mild TBI is is very common in the SEAL teams. I'm pretty sure that all of us have uh, some level of it just from all the rockets and explosions. Um, So he's dealing with that stuff. And, uh, you know, what I noticed was that um, I saw a behavioral pattern, uh, which I don't, I don't hold it against him. Uh, I think it's normal. It's a normal thing that happens in the teams, but there was sort of, you know, sedative used to help with sleep because he's not getting good sleep, which makes the sleep worse. And then when you wake up and you got like 50% restoration, then you slam a monsters coffee, whatever, to wake up kind of thing. So I noticed this type of behavior, and, and I thought that, you know, it was a little bit odd. Um, one thing led to another, and, you know, I don't want to get into the politics on a podcast here, but the command did not treat uh, Ryan right at that time. Um, I was there for it. It was terrible. Uh, you never sort of ostracize one of your own. Um, Ryan started to go through his own challenges, um, you know, for whatever reason. And eventually led to him literally butting heads with the Commodore. And thank goodness his dad, Frank was there to come down and ensure that Ryan just didn't get completely screwed. And, uh, so he left the Navy. Um, it wasn't under good conditions, Uh, that really, I feel like that really, uh, impacted Ryan in a negative way. And after, um, you know, some months and some, you know, less than desirable results, doing some interviews, looking for jobs, what does the future hold? Um, I think Ryan was awake for something like five days and just took his life, um, So that impacted me in a big way. You know, I'm not going to say that I was Ryan's best friend, but I did care about the guy and I did see the signs. He did reach out to me. And so for a long time that echoed in my mind, like, Oh man, if there was just one more thing I could have done, I had an opportunity and I didn't reach my hand back out to, uh, to grab his. So that kind of, you know, there was one weekend that I was just totally depressed um, and I, I couldn't even move. But then after that, uh, I thought, what can I do in my little world, in my tiny place in the universe uh, to make an impact and learn from what just happened? And so my perspective on the whole thing was that uh, when I, I just looked at the whole picture and what I saw, this is just my perspective, was that sleep was a, a primary factor in this whole thing and you know I I didn't know if that was a real thing at the time it's silly to me now but it's like does sleep really even affect you that much Uh, so I began talking to doctors and hey does sleep affect mental health became very good friends with a psychiatrist Uh, eventually we became uh, partners in this endeavor for sleep technology and whenever he talked he'd say things like um, you know with his patients if it doesn't matter what prescription he would offer them, uh, if the sleep didn't improve, the mental health typically would not improve. However, if uh, the mental health improved, I'm sorry, if the sleep health improved, almost always uh, the mental health would improve, which kind of begs the question, like, why are we even focusing on, uh, you know, psychiatric medication when um, sleep could be uh, the biggest factor? And I think... The reason why is that um, sleep is just really tough. Um, You know, if you look at cognitive behavioral therapy, I mean, you're talking about a a professional that dedicates their time. And oh, yeah, by the way, does your insurance cover that? Do you have time to take off work? Can you pay for this? Can you go do it? It's kind of a heavy lift. It's much easier just to say, oh, well, here you go. Here's a prescription. Prescription for sleep, prescription for mental health, prescription for whatever. Uh, That's kind of the easy button. So to unpack that a little bit more, my determination was that I thought that sleep was a major factor in Ryan's uh, suicide. So I began to look is you know is this a common thing uh, in the SEAL teams and it turns out that it is both sleep uh, issues and uh, suicidality that comes along with that. Um, is this a problem in the Navy? Turns out that it is. Is this a problem in the entire military? It turns out it is. The RAND report came out on how terrible uh, the sleep is in the military. And the the publications just continue to come out, continue to come out. And then, of course, um, if we're not just focused on the military, I did look at civilian population. You know, is, is sleep an issue with the civilian population? And it's definitely not as bad, but it is an epidemic right now. It turns out, There's a sleep epidemic. A third of the country, like 100 million people, are short sleeping, which is leading to car crashes and bad choices and health effects. And, in fact, the uh, World Health Organization uh, at at one point uh, named shift work as a probable carcinogen, right? Just shift work. Just shift work will probably give you cancer, right? So anyways, um, my my whole perspective on the thing was that sleep – uh, not only was affecting Ryan, uh, but affects a whole bunch of people. And if there's one thing that I wanted to do, leaving the military uh, and figuring out what the next chapter of my life looks like is to give my heart and my time to this cause of informing people about sleep, working on uh, technology to help out with this problem, which is why I designed the first uh, you know military sleep pod for The SEAL teams, it never it never got implemented. We're still working on the technology, Uh, but then other sleep technologies have been working on. We've only had about three years to attack this problem. Uh, Might take the the rest of my life, but that is now my dedication, so.
0: Well, thank you so much for for telling the story. I mean, I think that's that's a common denominator, excuse me, a common denominator that I see. And, And one of your fellow SEALs, Doc Parsley, who I mentioned before, That was his big aha moment as well, was this use of Ambien. And it wasn't so much the mental health side that he was observing at the time, but it was more the blood work as their physician. He he left the SEAL teams, came back as their physician on the West Coast and was wondering why the blood work like it was from an 80-year-old woman. And so when he realized that so many of his his fellow operators were on Ambien, and then like you said, alcohol, so two products that simulate sleep but actually don't allow you to get into any good restorative sleep whatsoever – he, I don't know exactly what it looked like, but he approached the command, was able to change the way they did the training to facilitate more sleep and completely overturned. And and then the blood work looked great again. But that total fallacy behind a sleeping medication, even the labeling is, is so, you know, so... Um, fictional that that's not it's 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 rendering you unconscious but you follow the same exact trail as if you're actually being sleep-deprived the whole time and he mentioned that shift workers and ambient addicts have the same shortened lifespan
1: yeah I I applaud Doc Parsley and I think he has a supplemental drink that uh, is really helpful so completely support everything uh, that you just mentioned I, gosh, it, what I see here is a we, we have the answers. We know that we need good sleep on a consistent basis. You know, Nita Shattuck over at the Naval Postgraduate School um, talks about this constantly. You know, she has the science. Um, she has been dedicated to this effort for so many years. She's really the leader of the Navy. Um, so we have the information, right? But how do we implement it when we have this cultural construct, this uh, societal agreement that we've made with each other that says it's a badge of honor to sleep deprived, to get there, close the sale, create the business, execute on the operation, do more. Right. And I think that perhaps uh, every first world country is dealing with short sleep, but definitely in America, it's like. We feel that it's important. It's almost um, a requirement that if you're in a, a high-performing position, that you're going to sleep deprive a little bit, right? You're going to get the job done, and sleep is a secondary factor. Uh, the good news is, uh, out here in California, um, some of the you know the thoughts on how a corporation works. Um, is sleep important? Uh, I think some of that's changing. Uh, we're seeing that uh, some of the, the newer and smarter corporations are offering sleep pods, are offering nap rooms, uh, also hospitals as well uh, for their doctors. And so people are seeing you know especially these companies that they got a lot of money on the line so they measure this and they have analytics are saying we actually get more performance, you know a higher efficiency of performance, or a better performance out of folks when they're well rested, and we get less performance. Although there's more time clocked on, on the books, they've been there for more hours, but they're getting better performance out of folks that have better sleep. And so, how do we how do we start to transition that to the military space to uh, you know behind the shield with um, you know officers in the line of duty and firemen? Um, I don't know how to approach that. I think that it's it's a nationwide campaign of, of changing how we look at sleep and, and sort of the cultural bias there. Uh, but it's one that I'm dedicated to. So,
0: Yeah, well, I want to talk about the sleep pods in a moment. But, you, I mean, you, you kind of had the solution, the answer to the change of philosophy and what you just said. Doc talks about, I think, for every, like, extra – um, extra hour, you stay awake, you lose an hour and a half of productivity. So I think getting companies, organizations, counties, cities, you know, the military, whoever it is to understand that by giving more recovery, more rest, you're actually going to save money down the road. So even if you don't care about human life, which you absolutely should, the less is more philosophy does apply. So for example, California, I used to work in Anaheim, um, that's a 56-hour work week. Some of the federal firefighters are working 72 hours a week. So, you know, yes, you might say, oh, I'm going to need, you know, this, this budget to create more staffing. But the reality is, if you bring that down to a 42-hour work week, which the Northeast all works, so you have a 24-hour shift and then you have 72 hours until your next one, that gives you two solid nights at home in your own bed, not having to wake up to go to shift the next morning at the crack of dawn to at least offset as much as you can of that damage. So for me one of the big things I'm trying to push is to get people to understand that not only will you save lives through mental health, through physical health, whether it's, you know, obesity, cancer, diabetes, suicide, overdose, but you're also going to save a huge amount of money because you're not going to have the the sick time, the injuries, the malpractice lawsuits and all these things that are going to add up on the back end.
1: I completely agree with that. I've seen some of those uh, numbers. Uh, What do they say? We're losing $400 billion um, is is what they calculated. Corporations are losing as a whole uh, from sleep deprivation or less than adequate sleep. Exactly like you said, you know, people are sick more. They're tired more. uh, They're more emotionally unstable. I know that sounds silly, but how does the performance of the individual match up with the sleep. If I could figure that out right now, uh, I would. Uh, the problem as, as a whole, uh, one approach that we've done uh, in, a, in a existing proposal right now um, that I'm not privy to talk about the details, but uh, sitting with the Navy, this proposal, in essence, is saying uh, we can correlate with sleep measurement um, how much estimated fatigue we think someone will have the next day. Now, of course, there's a lot of factors there, right? But the big thing is uh, the Navy wants to know, is someone so fatigued that we could potentially have a ship collision like the two that in 2017? 19 kids, I believe, lost their life. It's terrible. How do we prevent that? If the primary reason in the investigation, I believe that's public knowledge now, is sleep, Right? People were underslept. Maybe they're running a skeleton crew. Maybe they're on Five and Dimes, uh, which is a watch rotation. If they're tired, I think being tired and making mistakes is sort of the story with every major disaster that was human related uh, in the last hundred years, right? If we look at it, we map it back. So I am a big proponent of better sleep health, better quality sleep, better sleep opportunities if I could just bring people back out in nature and get their natural circadian rhythm into a healthy ha- habit, that's what I would do. Is that reasonable? No. I mean, people are on deployment. People have tough, uh, shift schedules. You know, like you said, the, the firefighters in California are busy. They're super busy. So how do we, how do we figure that out for the average person that's living in the city has a chaotic lifestyle uh, and that 's one of the things that I hope to do i 'm aiming to provide those those solutions uh, that help people, even if it 's just a ten percent twenty percent increase in sleep performance that 's better than nothing right um,
0: yeah absolutely well let's let 's expand on that and so tell me about the virtual sleep environment and then you know the applications that that you think it's going to work well in
1: yeah th- thanks for asking so I uh have been working on an idea Um, what type of technology can I build because we have incredible health professionals out there, but they are limited uh, both in mental health and sleep health um, to address the sleep epidemic, um, both in the military and external to the military. Um, But how do I create a solution to save someone like Ryan? Like I can't save Ryan. Um, We'll never be able to go back in time. But How can I save people who are struggling with sleep and offer something for them to help out uh, in lieu of having a medical professional for every single person 24 hours a day? I want to amplify the forces of of all the hardworking people that are trying to help improve uh, the sleep of individuals. uh, And I want to improve that with by sort of automating uh, some of their efforts with sleep technology. Right. How can we leverage sleep technology? Because I can build uh, one you know, device or something for every person out there. I can't provide a a medical doctor for every person out there, but I can definitely provide a widget or some type of sleep technology. So what does that look like? And so, you know, I authored a paper back at uh, University of California, San Diego, uh, which I'm so fond of that school. It's an incredible place. Uh, You should visit the campus sometime if you haven't. Um, So I authored a paper uh, surrounding You know, how does light, sound, and temperature uh, impact sleep? You know, how do those environmental stimuli impact your sleep? And so that was just the beginning. Um, And so that was kind of the model for how will I build sleep technology. Um, So the virtual sleep environment, what is that, right? Um, So basically, we took the idea of a sleep pod, which, you know, if you go out on deployment, guys are building their own little box or whatever, uh, that people can, you know, they can fit into there and it's kind of quiet. Sometimes folks don't really have that opportunity. So my thought is how can I build a modular unit just for sleeping, right? Because some people really, really, really need sleep. So how do I provide an optimal sleep experience in a pre packaged ready to go kind of thing? Uh, and, you know, we, we looked at, you know, the military application, we built a design that goes onto an aircraft. It, know, click, 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 goes right into the 463 Lima platform. All right. Uh, Still working on that. But then we could probably just put this into uh, sort of a, you know, a, a regular sleep pod for other people, right? What about first responders? What about the business road warrior that, you know, they have to make that timeline. They're in an airport. They're transferring uh, between flights. Uh, If they get an opportunity, they'd like to take that 20-minute nap. If they have a chance, they'd like to get a full night's sleep and get fully restored. So kind of where we're at with that is we wanted to use these foundational principles of light, sound, and temperature. And we created what is somewhat of a sensory deprivation tank, right? So we're blocking out all the external stuff. And then we're very careful on what it is that we introduce on the inside. So we have, um, you know, cooling to keep it cool on the inside. We have, uh, we're working with uh, the only U.S. manufacturer of OLED panels in the United States here that does uh, our lighting. So we have bio-friendly lighting that's 100% zero blue light. Uh, and then we also have full spectrum lighting because there's a bit there um, resetting the circadian rhythm, uh, the sleep wake circadian rhythm, first thing in the morning uh, with that full spectrum light into the retina. so we we are very careful and have manicured the the light, the quality of the light on the in, inside of this thing. and And so then we get into uh, the sound, right? And so some of the things that we've looked at that are that people really like are, you know, white noise, pink noise, brown noise, uh, waterfalls, rain. Um, Sometimes people like a little bit of clatter of the the city traffic in the background. Uh, So we wanna provide the basic, uh, you know, soundscape type of, um, you know, audio background, Uh, but we also want to include some things like binaural audio, right, so we're using frequencies that the brain can sort of attach to and we can attempt to do a little bit of brain driving into sleep, right? People find that uh, hugely beneficial uh, in a number of different, um, you know, applications. But now we're providing this platform uh, where everything is super controlled and it can be done. It can be executed perfectly. Right. Uh, Then we've, uh, you know, our our mutual friend Janelle um, has helped us get guided meditation online. So all these are options. You don't have to do the binaural audio. It's just a, a selection on the app. Um, But if you'd like to, you can listen to uh, guided meditation. And we found that this is very helpful in relaxation, in visualizing, um, you know, that sleep that you're about to uh, slip into slumber. So those are uh, the the points on how we are addressing what we know about the, the physiological response to stimuli in the sleep pod. But there's also... A psychological and an interactive feature that we've built into this thing and so what that is uh, we used again OLED panels right and we're working on getting custom OLED panels um, a, a custom OLED panel designed just for the sleep pod but we're looking at like 10 million bucks in, in cost uh, to do it custom so we're using um, you know technology from LG and so we have a paper-thin organic light-emitting diode display, the OLED display. It wraps around the inside of the sleep pod. So imagine like sort of an IMAX theater, right? Except for we can control every single pixel. That's what makes it organic, right? So inside of the sleep pod, if you so choose, you can enter, you can select an environment. Uh, you know, the first one that we designed was Hawaii. Right. So or or generic island. Right. So you select the island and all of a sudden you look around and it looks like you're in Hawaii or you're on an island. You're on a quiet little island and you're looking off in this direction. You see the trees uh, blowing in the wind. You look off in this direction. You can see the waves crashing in and it looks like you're looking through a pane of glass into a different world. And the reason why we do that is because we know that images of nature are relaxing. Even if you just have a picture of nature at the job place, uh, it can be calming. So what we want to do with that is what's called light phasing. And so we're very careful about what light we introduce uh, with that display. Uh, But since we're able to control the light volume in each pixel and the color, uh, what we do is is we're actually watching more of the sunset, right? So you watch the sunset. You watch the, the sun go down. It's very relaxing. It goes to darkness. It's a smooth transition. If you'd like to listen to the, uh, the guided meditation, great. Uh, and then there's a quiet, protected, more sensory deprivation uh, throughout the night so you can have uninterrupted sleep with the correct environmental so that your body is just, you know, running on all eight cylinders for sleep and then you know come towards the morning um we don't want the crazy alarm clock man man we uh wake people up very slowly with a full spectrum light inside the the pod and a sunrise sequence uh, on the display and so uh, the temperature is warmed slowly the light is increased slowly and this not only wakes up uh, the the user uh, carefully uh, and slowly, but it also helps that retina uh, prepare for the day. Saying, "Okay, now it's morning time. I see the light. Uh, it's time to set my clock, my body clock, to this period of time." And what we hope to do, uh, if, you know, let's say if we could capture uh, a user community that uses this on a consistent basis, um, it's going to differ depending on who the user is, but If we can help, especially with veterans, uh, if they did our six-week program, if if we could help them get onto a consistent schedule with this tool, uh, we know that it takes a month to form habits. If we're able to help someone get onto a more consistent schedule with protected sleep and optimal sleep environment, uh, we're hoping uh, that this can make an impact on multiple different Uh, you know, areas of focus Uh, because if we all have a little bit better sleep, we're all going to perform better. We're going to see less uh, emotional reactions. Imagine, imagine, you know, a hundred million people who are short sleeping. That's what the statistics are saying right now. And we know short sleeping leads to emotional volatility at some level. Imagine seeing that in the United States. I don't even know what that would look like. Right. But I want to improve on that. So we're working every day on it. Um, was that a good description?
0: No, it was fantastic. And and I love certain elements. So like you said, the the healing element, I can totally attest um, a couple of things. Firstly, you mentioned Doc Parsley's uh, sleep formula. I absolutely swear by it. It's an incredible way to, to initiate the sleep cascade naturally. So you're not snowing yourself as melatonin. You just, you know, just opening the door and then it does the rest itself and always have great sleep with that. Headspace, the app. I found that's very very good whether you know whether you do it during the day whether you do it actually before you go to sleep but another thing and then obviously nature I mean I I make a point of being on my front porch when the sun rises or walk my dog so that I can calibrate my my circadian rhythm now I'm off shift with those stimuli as well so the potential even like healing mental health element of this if this was even you know in in a in a facility somewhere is great I can see the potential for crossing time zones, whether it's in the military or the civilian world. Um, So there are so many elements that I think that this could work incredibly well.
1: Yeah, so the the development timeline for us, um, our fabrication uh, factory is nearly done with the first sleep pod. We've been working on this for years. It's quite an engineering hurdle. Uh, and quite an engineering marvel, for that matter. Um, so we have all the individual comp- components sorted out once we get the full panels. And this is a relatively large thing, right? It's, it, we're using a twin XL bed for, for one individual. And the entire thing is 100% completely encapsulated. Um, so we built in safety features and all that. But it does close. Uh, people don't have to worry about claustrophobia if you reach out. Um, there's enough space where you can't even touch uh, the edges or anything like that. So it's, it's rather voluminous. Um, So I'm thinking that early this next year, uh, we have some, uh, I'm focusing on the Navy research labs, but we have some folks that are going to start testing this and refining it. Uh, Hopefully, you know, my dream, uh, if anybody from Navy SEAL foundation is is listening, um, my dream is to perhaps partner with an organization uh, like them or the Semper 5 Fund uh, with Sue Baker over there and get this in an area of facility, get, a, you know, a half dozen of these sleep pods and begin giving, uh, you know, veterans who perhaps have transitioned out, giving them a chance to go through the six-week program and get their circadian rhythm right so they can walk away hopefully with a habit that they that can last, that they can bring home with them and say, okay, here's my schedule. Uh, I understand sleep hygiene now. Here's what right looks like. And I'm going to continue this on. Um, that That's the hope. That's the goal. Uh, because we do want to make an impact with the veterans for sure.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's a fantastic idea. And it, even even just on a very basic level, um, I took my family on a cruise right before covid hit so it was good timing um and my two sons were in the internal cabin so at nighttime it was pitch black and you know they were able to to put the air down a little bit too and we had to go bang on the door you know so so there's no question that when you have that complete deprivation environment that you are going to really draw out that good sleep and then another kind of element that reminded me of is years ago back in 2001 2002 i lived in japan and they have what they call sleep hotels. So it wasn't a whole room, and partly probably because of the the, the lack of space, but it was kind of like you're talking about. And I don't know again what the climate was like, what the darkness was like, but they rented a a pod. And they, but all these pods were stacked together in in these buildings. But again, it just gave these these businessmen and women probably you know ninety minutes whatever it was to to recharge in the middle of the day.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I'm a strong supporter of sleep pods. Uh, They have a lot of stuff in Japan. uh, That's really cool. So when you compare like what is out there now, uh, I feel like most of the sleep pods that exist out there now are pretty uh, generic. Uh, They are a space, but rarely are they climate controlled. Rarely do they block sound and sometimes they'll block light. But a lot of times the construction is just like, a piece of fiberglass or whatever, and it just kind of closes and you have your own private space. So that's important. Just having a private space to rest and relax is important. Uh, But what we've done is take sort of that idea of a private sleeping space and we've added technology like no one has ever seen before. I mean, this is it gets me excited every day going to our warehouse and looking at uh, the technology that we're working on. This has never been done before. I mean, this is like virtual reality times a thousand because you're not putting something on your face. One of our guiding principles coming from the teams is I don't want to put nothing on me. I don't want to put on a polysomnography, uh, the wave cap or any of the EKG stuff. I don't want to put on a wrist wearable, not consistently. I don't want to put on a VR mask. I don't want to do anything. I just want to get inside of the pod and it just works. And it's incredible. And that's what we're doing. And it's never been done before. It kind of makes, uh, you know, these other sleep pods look a little um, Stone Age, if you will. Uh, but we're, we're super supportive of all sleep pods. I think it's important with – it's actually a global epidemic in every first world country. There's a sleep epidemic right now in 2020, unfortunately. Um, but I would say any, anything you can do to get better sleep – Uh, I'm 100% in in favor of. Um, Hopefully we get this sleep pod finished and out the door in the next few months uh, so we can get it tested and get it to the market, people that need it.
0: Beautiful. Just one more kind of uh, interesting factor of this before we go to some uh, closing questions. um, They have a ballistic element to it as well. So tell me about that.
1: So if you're referring to uh, the military sleep pod design, um, you know, I would say, you know, I've talked to SOCOM about this at Link um, through via uh, proposals that we've submitted to them. And, and they'd like to see the technology a little farther along. And we're almost there. And so we're going to come back and say, hey, see, here's uh here's what you asked for. Here's what it looks like now. But in the military version, and I can try to paint a picture for you, imagine a ballistically protected shell, right? So this is... This is more military industrial, it's boxed. You can stack multiple of these on top of each other. Uh, they have the ability to be stacked and carried by a helicopter or put into an aircraft on their uh, rolling rack system to lock them in place. We, we do this all day, every day. We use ISU 90s from uh, the AAR Corp um, to transport all of our uh, important materials on aircraft and so forth. So the way that we designed this, like, okay, we'll just take only the space that we need, which is uh, enough to sleep in and keep all of your your, uh, personal effects. And we'll use that um, as a protected sleep pod. Now, if you're transporting to another location, you can put your gear in there. That's fine, which is what they're using ISU-94 anyway. Uh, And then once you get where you're going, you can sort of decompress some some sort of packing and then sleep inside of it. So some of the advantages beyond just sleep performance uh and i'm kind of you know talking mostly towards special forces but some of the advantages beyond uh, just sleep performance are the ballistic uh impact ability to deflect uh rounds and shrapnel and stuff like that if we have a a safe protected area because i just remember like sleeping in iraq and (laughs) i had the top bunk and we were sitting in an ISIS, uh, former ISIS stronghold. So we just kind of took it over and I built myself a decent rack and thank goodness I got a a mattress. Right. And there I am And every single night before I went to bed, I imagined a rocket coming through the top and just, that was it, right? That was it. And I always felt a little uncomfortable and that probably was one of the reasons I didn't sleep so good. Uh, but so the, the design would be, uh, ballistically protected, to a certain level, right, uh, within reason. It, what it becomes really is a measurement between how much ballistic protection we want and how much weight we want uh, to be able to ship on the aircraft. So then beyond that, um, when you have a sealed container like that, you also have the ability to start integrating um, chemical, biological, radiological protections, uh, so air filtration systems, stuff like that. Uh, it might uh, might well serve as a bunker uh, in one of those type of attacks. So, a lot's to be seen on the military front, whether we can build something that the military likes and they're willing to buy and deploy. Um, in the short term, for all those guys that are about to go out on deployment, you know, look at, look at Doc Parsley's remedy, look at sleep health, sleep hygiene. Um, if you can get a face mask and earplugs and try to pro- provide yourself some type of protection Uh, During that sleep period, it really does matter your performance goes up your testosterone goes up uh, at least to healthy levels Uh, Your alertness your awareness everything goes up. Uh, So definitely take that sleep health uh, Seriously
0: Beautiful. That's a great segue. So thank you for that Um, Firstly, I guess talking about the pod itself. Are there any places online that people can get not insight on can I reach out to you at this point?
1: Yeah, we have a website uh, we call ourselves the Exist Tribe uh, because we've looked at this existential crisis that's in front of us and we're trying to use technology uh, to address that. So we call ourselves the Exist Tribe. Uh, you're welcome to join uh, the newsletter or be a part of our group. Uh, the more the merrier. Uh, hopefully, you know, we're all a, a group of like minded people that want to make the world a better place. So that website is www.exist tribe.com um we try to keep it updated um and my email is rob at exist com. Uh, anybody feel free to uh, reach out to me normally i can respond within a day
0: fantastic all right well then the first of the closing questions is there a book that you love to recommend to people it can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated
1: well um Just uh, off the top of my head, um, unrelated to sleep, I would say uh, the book that has made the most impact on my life recently uh, is a book called The Four Agreements. Um, I believe the author is uh, Don Miguel Ruiz. Um, The book just has such an impact on my life uh, in the way that I think, in the way that I treat other people and just being okay with myself um, in, in existence and that sort of thing. Um, I'll say my favorite sleep book, uh, you know, Dr. Matthew Walker, haven't met the guy yet. Um, I've kind of been following his, his progress over the years. Uh, I, I understand he's a professor up there at Berkeley. And so I've tried to reach out to him there, but, um, haven't been able to cross paths, but he has a book called why we sleep which is just really incredible. It's almost like the Bible for sleep. I definitely recommend it. Uh, There's another one by Chris Winters uh, that's phenomenal and Arianna Huffington also wrote a book on sleep that was phenomenal. Um, So there's a lot of good content out there. I'd say those are the top three sleep books in the world right now. Um, Yeah, so happy reading.
0: Beautiful, yeah, I've been trying to get Dr. Walker on. I've had a similar response so far, but uh, I know it's gonna happen one day. It's just uh, timing it right. Such an incredible
1: guy.
0: Absolutely. But I I think I haven't really heard him talking, you know, from a military or first responders perspective. So I'd love to get him on and kind of, you know, have that discussion from from the shift worker perspective, you know, from the the first responder or military uh, lens, as it were. All right. So then moving on to uh, a movie, are there any movies and or documentaries that you love?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I uh, haven't watched any movies recently or documentaries. Um, to be honest with you, I uh, have been pretty heads down in work. I'm working for a company uh, called CTI, um, a software company that also makes a pretty big impact on the uh, military end users. And then I also uh, work this business. So I've been pretty heads down. And then on top of that, uh, I like to spend a good amount of time with my wife, Mimi, uh, my daughter, Jimena. And my little baby boy, Robert the Third. So,
0: Brilliant. Great answer. <laughs> All right. That's so then good. the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: That's a really good question. Um, there's so many. Um, off the top of my head, um, you know, one of my dear friends, Jason Richard, um, is has a very different perspective uh, but also is concerned with sleep he might be a good person Uh, but what I'll do is I will uh, come you know put together a list of uh, potential candidates that I think might be good for the the show and I'll email them over to you
0: that will be amazing thank you so much all right so then the last question um, what do you do to decompress
1: well I'll tell you Uh, In this chapter of my life, kind of spinning down from uh, the military experience, which is challenging because, you know, we've been called adrenaline junkies. You know, one minute I'm flying out of an airplane skydiving. uh, The next minute I'm charging up a hill with an automatic weapon, like who knows what we're training. Um, So getting away from that, I've had to come to terms with reality. Uh, Both I'm getting older and I'm not as my physical prowess is not what it once was. Uh, that I do have that addiction to adrenaline and excitement. Uh, I need to come to terms with that and be more present with my family. So I think that, you know, the first thing that is uh, important in my life uh, to maintaining some level of balance is breathing techniques. Um, You know, these things, uh, you know, you can Google them, watch YouTube. Uh, Breathing is so important. And it's foundational to our every function of our life. Um, So getting on that positive uh, breathing for me is uh, has been hugely beneficial. Um, And then there's some meditation, Uh, you know, thinking about nothing or being able to relax has really helped my mind um, settle itself uh, at times. Uh, Yoga is another big thing, Uh, being able to you know, use that breath work, but in physical motion and in positions that perhaps stretch the muscles uh, and really relax the musculoskeletal system so that I'm more at balance. It's all about balance, right? Work-life balance, family balance, balance within your sleep. Um, So those are the things that I use uh, to sort of decompress and relax. Um, And I'm also happy to uh, take on any other suggestions or ideas that you have.
0: Beautiful. Well, well, on the yoga element, how did you meet Janelle? Well, Janelle and
1: I met at the, uh, I, I think we can talk about this, right? The, the uh, uh, foundation uh, down there in Florida. Um, I think we went there for a week-long retreat to learn about uh, mental health and uh, you know, especially veterans and uh, stuff like that. So I uh, met her in Florida She taught me some yoga positions, which I wasn't necessarily uh, good at all (laughs) of them. Um, And then she taught me something called iRest, rest which was very impactful in my life, Uh, kind of that guided meditation and that transition between uh, wakefulness and sleep um, as it pertains to yoga. Um, So she's the expert on yoga. She'll have to tell you a little bit more about uh, the details of iRest. rest uh, but it it's really a good thing and it's actually a foundational part of of our strategy with uh what goes on inside the sleep
0: pod now so beautiful yeah i'm interviewing her on tuesday so i'll get to experience it firsthand her and ray fantastic people
1: really good people
0: yeah we're going to i'm going to actually going to do it face to face so i think they're going to put me through some uh some yoga first and we're going to do an interview and then grab lunch after so it should be a a good uh, immersion with them all right. So, so then you mentioned the uh, the website already. Are there any other places you're on social media at all? Anywhere else people can reach out to you?
1: Yeah, Exist Tribe is on LinkedIn. Uh, there's a page there. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Um, I think a lot of people like to follow our Instagram to get sort of some inspirational quotes as it pertains to sleep. Um, but everybody who's somebody is focused on good sleep health, right? Sleep nutrition exercise it's all very important so
0: absolutely well i think that's the way we reframe it to the resistance that we see from you know whether it's the men and women in in the military the fire the police is that it's not a weakness that the opposite you know you want to be the best version of yourself the best firefighter police officer you know soldier whatever it is if you're not incorporating good sleep hygiene you're actually taken away from that
1: completely agree
0: brilliant all right well robert we've gone over time already so thank you so much for being so generous with your time today i really appreciate it and uh you know thank you for coming on the podcast thank you so much james i look forward to talking to you again soon